Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning is from the first chapter of Isaiah, verses 1 to 20. But before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, thank you for your great goodness to us in Christ Jesus. Your word tells us that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. We praise you that we do not have to depend on daily sacrifices, but that in your great love and mercy you sent the Lord Jesus as the supreme sacrifice, and his blood cleanses us from all sin. Father, guide us by your spirit, we pray, to know your will. Help us to respond with faith and obedience so that in all we do and say we would be bringing honour to your name. We pray that you will strengthen James as he brings your teaching to us. Soften our hearts to receive your word. And to you, Father God, be all glory and praise and honour. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah chapter 1 from verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten any more? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Whoops, not going to work. When you come before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. 
They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, well, here we are kicking off this series, uh, looking at the book of Isaiah. The way that we're going to do this is we're going to look at nine different passages over the course of the book, coming from almost every single major section that we have. So for those of you that were starting to get a little bit nervous that we're going to preach through all 66 chapters word for word, um, good news, that's next year. Um, No. Uh, But that's how we're going to do it. So we're going to get a flavor uh, of the book, and we're going to see sort of how it all fits together and that sort of thing, but really parachuting in and out uh, to work our way through this book. So that's how we're going to do it. And you can see there that the title for this morning is this question about doing right. It's a real focus of this passage. And it's an interesting idea to reflect on, the idea of doing the right thing. Because I kind of feel like this is not a really prominent cultural question for us at present. And there's a whole bunch of different reasons for it, but I feel like growing up, there was lots of movies and TV shows that I would watch, and the theme of that TV show uh, would be something along the lines of, you know, doing the right thing and the, the moral courage necessary to do it. But these days, we're a lot more interested in other questions, like finding your truth or doing what's right for you. And so this idea of doing the right thing, learning to do right as something that's objective and true and something that we have to learn about and discover, not as something that comes from our own hearts, but rather as something that's outside of us, is a little bit of a foreign concept to us. But we're going to see here in the book of Isaiah that there is a very strong sense of what it is to do right. And so we're going to let this passage raise this topic for us this morning, and we're going to wrestle with this and what it means for us uh, as believers today, especially in light of all that Christ has done for us. So, so let's jump into this a little bit of context here. Let me help you uh, understand a little bit where we are in history and geographically and all this sort of stuff. So this is a timeline that you'll find in your growth group studies. Now, I do apologize. The ones in the growth groups have a couple of date corrections. Uh, we've got the wrong date up there. This is the correct date, 722 BC. Uh, and down here, that's meant to be 930 BC. So we'll put this up a couple of times so you can correct that uh, in there. But essentially, you can see here that we've Put some references here for you. So in biblical history, we've had Saul, David, Solomon. Okay, this was around 1,000 to you know, 970, 930 BC. Uh, none of this is really to scale. Let's just give you a bit of a picture. And then after Solomon, we see that the kingdom of Israel was split into two separate kingdoms, where there was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And that's really important for us to understand because it says here in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Isaiah, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. 
So Isaiah is a book that's primarily being spoken to Judah, the southern kingdom. That's who Isaiah is speaking to. And it's worth noting because a couple of times it gets a little bit confusing because sometimes he calls Judah Israel. What he means by that is not the nation, the political nation. He means the people of God. Right? Israel is the theological name for the people of God. So even though sometimes he's going to say the word Israel, he's still talking to Judah and Jerusalem. That's just a helpful contextual marker so we know who he's talking to. All right? And then it goes on to say that this vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he's speaking during this particular time in history, at the end of the reign of King Uzziah, through these four kings. Isaiah was speaking to them all at different points. But it's also worth recognizing there, as you can see, that we've got this seven years of Babylonian exile. This is when Isaiah is living and speaking. But as we're going to see in the second half of the book, from chapter 40 onwards, lots of what he's talking about is really uh, speaking about what seems to be a post-exilic time period. It's after the exile. And we're going to learn lots more about this as we go through, just trying to give you some context. It's also worth noting that he's speaking at a particular political time. All right. So these are the kings of the Assyrian Empire. And that's kind of the, the big historical background that all of this stuff is taking place in. And these Assyrian kings and their foreign policy of aggression is really important because that's the context in which the political kings of Israel are living and operating. Now, we're not actually going to do the historical chapters that are in the book of Isaiah. All right? We're not actually going to dive into that stuff. That'll take us a little bit too long. But if you look there around chapters 37 to 39, you'll see some of the history stuff. You can have a bit of a read of it. And that's kind of the background to a lot of the stuff that's happening. So geographically, we're in the ancient Near East. You can see that big green area there is the Assyrian Empire. All right? Those are the guys that quote the bad guys in this uh, book, so to speak. And there's this tension going on consistently for Judah and uh, Jerusalem there, who was split between this empire of Egypt and this empire of the Assyrians. And there's this constant temptation for them to, instead of trusting in God, to make political deals to try and secure the future of Judah and Jerusalem. That's the tension that's often going forward. And so Isaiah is speaking these prophetic words to a people in a particular historical and political context. And as we're going to see, in the midst of all this historical and political back and forth, even though Israel is prospering in some ways, we're starting to see some cracks and some rot appear. And Isaiah is going to speak very firmly towards that, particularly with how they relate to the nations around them. All right, so that's kind of our big contextual intro. Again, you can read more about this in our series, Companions, with the growth group material. Uh, and if you've got any questions about that, please feel free to come and chat. So let's have a look at Isaiah's first section here, which we're calling the, the, na the nation situation. This is Isaiah opening of the, uh, the first five chapters here. They're kind of like the preface to the rest of the book. It's not chronological, but this is, the, this is him uh, in these first five chapters opening up the themes that he's going to explore. And the first one he wants them to understand is, what situation is the nation of Israel in? So he says, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth. All right? Who's he speaking to? Everyone. All right? The heavens to the earth. All right? Every, that, that covers everything. There's nothing outside of that. All right? He says, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. God's got something he wants to say. And it's not good. He says, I reared children and brought them up, 
but they have rebelled against me. He's talking about his people, Israel. Again, Judah, Jerusalem, that specifically, but his people, Israel. They've been his children since the time they declared that they would be my people and I would be your God. But despite the special relationship that he has with them, he now says, despite the way that I've raised you up, that they have rebelled against me. And he's going to drill this home with a couple of word pictures. He says, the ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Isaiah is not starting off gentle here and working his way into a critique of the people of Israel. He is throwing fire right from the start. Oxes, donkeys, two animals not exactly known for their in-depth intellectual analysis. They're not the dolphins of the animal kingdom. All right, These are foolish creatures, but even they understand who their master is, but Israel does not know My people do not understand. And so he says, Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great. I'm trying to highlight you. You can see that this is a prophetic dialogue. It's it's not quite poetry, but there's a rhythm to it. All right? He's repeating ideas in order to emphasize his point. And again and again, I'm trying to show that with the highlighting here a little bit. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great. A brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, all right? They have forsaken the Lord. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. They are more foolish than beasts. They should know better. They have children who have rebelled against their father. They have forsaken the Lord, spurned the Holy One of Israel, turned their backs on him. This is not a good place for them to be. And so Isaiah pleads with me, says, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? And in order to answer this question, he sort of says to them, like it, or to back up why this question is asked with such confusion, it's because your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. In fact, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. You could also translate that word as just a healthy part. There's no part of you that is actually healthy. From the bottom to the top, there's no soundness. There's no peace. You guys are messed up. There's only wounds and welts and open sores. Not even, there's not even a chance for healing. You're not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. The picture here is one who is wounded and they're not getting better. Not only have you been injured from from head to toe, but also you're not even dressed to to give you a a chance to heal. There's no bandages here. No no cleansing, no no healing coming forth for you. That's the situation that you're in. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Remember, Like I said, this is in a political context, right? Assyria is this empire that's aggressively coming into Israel's territory in order to take them over. And there's a real sense here of these people who are not God's people. Remember, they're living in the promised land. It's been drastically shrunk. It's been divided into kingdoms, Israel and 
Judah. And there's a sense in which their territory is shrinking. But even now we see that those who are not of the people of God are coming in and stripping the land, laying waste to it. In fact, he says, daughter Zion is left. When he says daughter of Zion there, he means Jerusalem. That's another name for the city of Jerusalem. She's left, she remains, but, but like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field. I don't know much about cucumber fields, but I'm assuming it's not great. Like a city under siege. Again, that repetition of ideas here in order to communicate the point that, that Zion, Jerusalem remains, but, but almost on its own. And unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah, two cities that were famously destroyed in the opening chapters of, of Genesis. Because of their sin, fire rained down upon them. And Israel is saying that if not for the Lord just leaving us a few survivors, this would have been us. This is how utter and complete our destruction would be. So it's not great. You could sum it up by saying the national situation, according to everything that Isaiah has listed here, Israel lacks knowledge, is rebellious, they've forsaken the Lord, they're beaten and wounded, their land has been scorched, and only Jerusalem survives by God's providence. It's only because the Lord has allowed them to remain. And then he sort of switches focus just a little bit from, from the land and, and the people more broadly, the, the sort of, uh, like I said, political and, and land issues to now these more spiritual matters. Okay, or we might mean religious situation because he's talking about their religious rituals and practice now. So the nation's in a bad shape. What about the spiritual life of the people? Well, you're not going to be surprised. That ain't great either. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, when he says Sodom and Gomorrah there, he's playing off that language he was just using. He's not talking about, he's not speaking back now historically to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's using an analogy and saying, you people of Jerusalem are like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So listen, Jerusalem, listen, you people of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. Even just being associated with them is fierce. Like, you can go back and read it for yourselves, but Sodom and Gomorrah were messed up. All right? they, they are some of the, the worst people, so to speak, that you get there in the Old Testament. And this is now what Isaiah is calling the people of the city of Zion. He says to them, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Now, this is important because they were meant to be doing these things. These sacrifices and these offerings that they were making, this wasn't stuff that they picked up from the nations around them. This wasn't the sort of stuff that they weren't meant to be doing full stop. In fact, we can see and go back to the book of Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, and we can see where God gave these offerings to his people as a means of living out their faith in him. All right, so if we ask the question, is Isaiah saying that God is you know, changing what he's always been doing in this space? Okay, the answer to that question is no, 
But what Isaiah is doing here is drawing on a theme that's been present since the, day, the days of uh, David, which is that while offering and sacrifices have been commanded by God, unless they're, met, unless they're partnered together with faith and obedience, they're nothing. So we go back and read in 1 Samuel 15 where it says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. The point that Isaiah is making here is that these people, despite the fact that they're keeping up these religious rituals, and this is an important thing, those kings that I mentioned before, they had not turned their back on God. In fact, we're going to see here that some of these kings are some of the better kings. They make some of the better decisions in the national life of the people of Judah. But there's still something corrupt and rotten at the core. And so, yes, they're doing the sacrifices, but, but the heart is in the wrong place as they're doing it. And so the Lord goes on and says, When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? They come into the temple. They come into the holy place there that's, that's built up in Jerusalem. But it's like they're, they're trampling his courts. They're not coming in respectfully. They're not coming in in the way that they're meant to be. They're just trampling through it. He says, stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. This is fierce, strong language. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, special sort of spiritual meetings and that. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. You gather together, but it's worthless. It does nothing. What is this? Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. God's got a lot of being. That's a lot of hate. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now, God's obviously speaking poetically here in the big sense. Of course, God doesn't get tired, but God speaks to us in emotional language to help us understand what he thinks and feels about what they are doing here. God hates it. I mean, I want you to take, uh, you know, all of us probably at some point, right, have had a job to do that you did not want to do. And I don't just mean like, you know, a few minutes. I mean like maybe, you know, casting your mind back to your early days of entering into, you know, some sort of uh, employment and you're at the bottom of the totem pole and you're given this, you know, repetitive job to do that they're getting you to do because nobody else wants you to do it. And you have that, you know, it's like a Wednesday morning and you're just going into work and you're having to do the same thing again that you just, you wish you were somewhere else doing something else and you just, you know, I'm just so weary. I hate this. I just, I want out. I want something different. Now times that by like a trillion with genuine hate, based on righteousness. Right? That, that's where the Lord is at with this. He says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. I can't even look at you when you speak to me. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. 
Now, you've got to remember here, because I, I think that we can listen to this and we can think, man, God seems really harsh here. I mean, these guys are praying. Well, why is he not listening? The whole point is they're, they're praying as part of these rituals. They're going through the motions, but everything about how they're living outside of these rituals that they're performing suggests that they have turned their backs on him. Remember, these are not different people that he's speaking to here, to the ones where he's just said, in the first half of our passage, you have turned your back on the Holy One of Israel. You've spurned him. You have departed from him. You are rebellious. You're not even, like an ox has more understanding of his master than you do. Same guys, okay? So when, when we're talking about many prayers here, they're empty words. It's not a prayer to their loving father who they know and care for and he's decided not to listen to them. Their hearts are corrupted. They're in rebellion against him. They're going through the motions, but it means nothing. And so the religious situation is, Israel's offerings and sacrifices are meaningless. God's weary of their empty religious practices. God detests their religious rituals. And God hides himself from the people. That's where we're at. That's the context in which we are looking at this book of Isaiah. Now, as we're going to see, there's absolutely hope in this book. But the first half, so uh, the first four passages that we're going to be looking at in the first half of the book, so chapters 1 to 39 or so, the overwhelming emphasis is going to be on judgment. We're going to have a few weeks of this where we look at God's word spoken prophetically to these people who are in rebellion against him. But we're going to see as we work through it that, there, that there's other bits going on at the same time. It feels really heavy, but if you look, you start to realize there's, there's hints of hope to come. So let's have a look at the instructions that he gives coming off the back of this. So he's explaining the national and religious situation to them, and then he says... Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. There's some good evidence that suggests that, particularly under King Uzziah, even though Israel was experiencing great wealth and was very successful politically, there was great unevenness in wealth. It was a classic case of those at the top were living very, very well and become very, very wealthy, but there was lots of injustice. And if you were at the lower end, all the wealth of Israel was not necessarily being passed down to you. Hence these specific exhortations towards caring for the oppressed the fatherless, and the widow. So he's saying, learn to do right, stop doing wrong. And he says, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, and we've seen just how scarlet they are. His words have made that abundantly clear. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, and again, that is a dark, dark crimson. They shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. You are not without hope. If you are willing and obedient, then the good things can still come. Remember, this this same land has been burnt. It's been desolated. There's still hope that you will eat the good of it if you are willing and obedient. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured 
by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now here's the thing, like I said, we're doing an Old Testament book this term, and so it's really helpful for us to understand a little bit about how we read it here, okay? We always have to read an Old Testament book in its original historical context and setting to understand what's happening, but we do so knowing what's going to come. See, we know that Isaiah spoke these words to the people of Judah, Jerusalem, to Israel. But we know that this, this hope held out before them here, be willing and obedient, you lead the good of the land, is something that they, they do not do because we know that what's called Babylonian exile is coming. Let me point out two things here. See, Assyria, okay, here takes over Israel in the north in 722 BC. So we've got Uzziah down here. He lives 791 to 740, okay? His son sort of takes over towards the end of his reign. And so just in here, okay, I told you it's not quite the scale. That's okay. Uh, Israel finishes to exist as a political nation. They're completely taken over by Assyria. That's Israel, all right? Judah continues a little bit longer, but we know that even they also will fall, not to the nation of Assyria, but to the Babylonian Empire, okay, a different empire that rises up in place of the Assyrians. So here's what we know. We know that they don't listen. We know that they don't change course. We know that these words remain true. That they offer these meaningless sacrifices, but it continues to be something that's detestable towards the Lord. And it becomes abundantly clean. It becomes abundantly clear that when the Lord says to them, wash and make yourselves clean, stop doing wrong, that this is impossible for them. And, and that's something that we need to understand because when we read the Old Testament, one of our goals is always to figure out how is this pointing us towards Christ and what he's done for us. And, and in this one, you know, with Isaiah, sometimes it gets called the fifth gospel because there's just so much stuff that points towards Jesus himself. And we see it here right from chapter 1 because in comparison to the sacrifices that the people of Israel were making, we now know of the sacrifice of Christ. And in the book of Hebrews, it actually gets recast. We're using the same sort of similar language to talk to us about why the sacrifice of Christ is superior to all of those sacrifices of old. So we're in Hebrews 10, that Jesus said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are all things in the book of Leviticus. You, Lord, did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Okay? They, they were doing the things. The rituals were being followed as they should, offered in accordance with the Lord. He's not just talking about the time of Isaiah right now. He's talking about more generally all these sacrifices being made, but it, but it applies very directly to their situation, right? He goes on to say, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this shit, this priest, Jesus Christ, has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. See, the people of Israel 
All their sacrifices were empty and meaningless. In Isaiah's time, because they were being done without obedience, without faith, truly in their hearts, it was all empty ritual. But through all of the Old Testament, even right up until Jesus' time, these sacrifices and offerings were being made, but none of them could actually really address the problem. And so these words here that Isaiah speaks... Come now, let us sit in the matter. Though your sins like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. This finds its real and true fulfillment in what we have in Christ. It was never possible because of their sinless condition for the nation of Israel to make these sacrifices in such a way that their sin was truly paid for. And so too, just like now, this is only fulfilled in Christ, this exhortation that he gives to do right is now also only possible through what Christ has done for us. So it says here, wash and make yourselves clean. Good news, this is what Jesus has done for all who believe. And so now we can do the stop doing wrong part. Now that Christ has come, now that he has washed us, now that he has cleansed us, now that we're forgiven... Now that that first part has been fulfilled by Jesus because we were unable to do it ourselves, now we actually can stop doing what's wrong, not by our strength, but by the strength of Jesus in us. And in fact, we see some of the same language that Isaiah uses being recast in in Peter that we just looked at last term. So Peter writes, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. When Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Isaiah says, you are like rebellious children who do not know, who do not understand. Peter now says that all those now who are in Christ, with your minds fully alert, with understanding, no longer in ignorance, live now as obedient children. And so from we as Christians now, in light of all that Christ has done, read that exhortation to learn to do right. That's something that's now possible for us. In fact, this is something that we have to be doing continuously because this is the picture of maturity that we actually receive. When again, we go back to the book of Hebrews, learning to do right is a sign that we are growing in the Lord. And so he says there in Hebrews 6, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Learning to do right, learning about how we are to live in this world, learning to do those things which which do please God, this is now our responsibility to seek to learn to do right. Now, this can look like a whole multitude of different things. So let's, and again, I encourage you to do this when you're working with an Old Testament passage. When you start to think about what does it look like to live this out, pay attention to the specific words that are actually in this passage. Because it'd be really easy for us to simply say, do what is right, and then just apply that to whatever moral quandary we might be facing in our own existence at the moment. And that's not bad. Like, that's good. But let's at least here pay attention to these words for a moment and think about what it looks like for us today to do these things. To seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. 
we have, uh, let's call it wealth inequality today in the same way that they did back then. Now, this is important. I think that if you read scripture and you try to end up with something where everybody has the same number of possessions and the same amount of money in the bank and all that sort of stuff, you're imposing something on the text. I don't think that there is a picture in scripture of where we're meant to sort of say end poverty. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I don't think that, that, that you could take that mandate from scripture and say, yes, we're meant to completely turn everything around so there's no poverty. Like, the actual picture in Scripture is that we're sinful people, we always will be. In fact, Jesus says, the poor you will always have. So it's not so much a case here of end poverty, but man, if you're around people who are vulnerable and hurting and need help, it's imperative upon us as we learn to do right that we care for them. And I also think that this is something that falls upon us more as individuals even than, than as the church. Let me explain what I mean by that. The mission of the church, I think, is given to us in Matthew chapter 20, sorry, in 28, uh, verses 16 to 20 there. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's the mission of the church as an institution. When we read about, you know, uh, in Ephesians 4, it says that uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers have been given for the building up of the saints that we can press on towards maturity, okay? The, the point of the church, my job, okay, is to equip all of you to grow in your faith, to do good works. But here's the thing. As we then leave this gathering where we've been equipped to do that, now each of us in our individual areas, the places where we live, you are in all likelihood going to come across at times people who are oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, those who need help. This is written to the people of Israel, a, a political nation. Yes, they, they, were, they were God's people, but they're living that out in the context of everyday community life. This is, this is not just temple stuff. This is more broad. And I think that for us, again, and I know that this isn't everybody here, but you know, we've been doing a little bit of work lately, and we, we just have to be honest about the reality of our situation the average household income in the suburbs that we live in, most of us, is about $20,000 higher than Brisbane as a standard sort of scale. We, we skew wealthy. And so what that means is, is that for us, I think that there's even a greater sense of responsibility for us to ask ourselves the question, what are we doing with this wealth when we come to those who need help? Now again, I'm not talking about revamping the entire mission of the church and mobilizing it so that we become all about social justice or something like that. But how ridiculous is it when you read Christians in certain spaces who would read this description and say, that's woke left progressive nonsense, that the church shouldn't be caring about this, that it's all about preaching the gospel. That's such a poor understanding of the complexity of what it looks like to follow Christ and really do right. We as a church community have a responsibility to, pro to proclaim the gospel. That's what we do, absolutely. But for us as individuals in our different communities and the different spaces that we live, we have a responsibility to learn to do right, to seek justice, defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. We, we can't be like the priest 
and the Levite who passes by the good Samaritan, sorry, who passes by the beaten up Jewish guy in that parable of the good Samaritan because we're too busy or we don't want to make ourselves unclean or we're worried about the things that we have to do. We have to love our neighbor, particularly those who are vulnerable and oppressed amongst us. Now that Christ has come and cleansed us, this is the, the good that we can learn to do. And finally, I just want a last little word of exhortation here. If you are uh, not currently following the Lord Jesus, I want to encourage you to take these words seriously, that you can be cleansed. To ask this question, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores. Not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. If you're in a place where you're ready to hear these words, I'm pretty sure that they will speak powerfully to you. And the hope of the gospel says to us that now because of what Christ has done, the matter can be settled. Though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And if that's you, it would be remiss of me not to encourage you to come and talk to myself, come and see somebody at the next step's desk, talk to whoever brought you, and learn more about what it looks like to come and enjoy this forgiveness. But for now, let's pray that we would be a people who do what is right, who learn to do what is right, and to live this out genuinely in the context that God has placed us in. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that through the work of Christ, we can learn to do good. We can learn to do right. That we can seek justice. That having been cleansed of our sins, having been given a new heart, we can live as obedient children. And what that looks like is, is taking up the cause of the fatherless. It looks like caring for the widow. It looks like fighting for the oppressed in order that we might show them the same love that you have shown us, doing what is right. So please may we be a light in this community, Father, a people who not only proclaim your gospel and live out your truth, but also those who seek to care for those that you bring to us in whatever sphere we find ourselves in order that we might do what is right and give you glory as we should. And we pray, Father, for any here who don't yet know you, who haven't yet experienced your cleansing power, we pray, Lord, that even now that you would be moving in their heart, they want to come and learn more so they can join us in this good work that you have for us all to do. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.